Welcome back to My Life Plus 25. For those of you who are new, my name is Mario Chavez, and I've been incarcerated for 17 years uh, for a crime that I did not commit. Uh, this podcast is part of my fight for freedom and justice, and my intention here is to give straightforward answers to your questions. So how this works is send me an email, uh, mario at mylifeplus25.com, or visit my website or any, any of my social media plat- platforms, and send me a question. Uh, related to my case, related to my life, related to wrongful convictions, whatever. I'll either respond to you individually or I'll do so here on this podcast. So today's email question came to me actually from more than one person, but in a couple of different uh, different different ways it was asked. And uh, But Amber G says, why do you believe that there was something unethical in how the prosecution pursued your conviction? Another message says, why do you think the state screwed you? But we'll go with this one. Uh, Why do you think there was something unethical for how the prosecution pursued your conviction? So thank you again for the question, Amber G. Um, I guess to start this, partly because the reason I believe what I believe is whenever you have an elected politician making prosecution decisions, part of the problem is always going to be that She's persuadable one way or another, depending on public opinion. And public opinion, as we all know, is shaped by the media. And the media often just mimes whatever the police tell them is true so that they can sensationalize everything. They believe whatever the police tell them is the truth. So let's say, for example, Amber, that you have a detective who will often commit to a theory of a crime early on before – All the evidence is even gathered. I mean, it's unlikely that he or she will ever change his mind. Police often feel that they can detect a lie because of their honed-in perceptions. But many studies have been done on this, and they've all shown that police are just as persuadable, one way or another, as anyone else is, as you or I. In other words, egos are often involved. And if a police detective has made a decision to believe a witness, it's difficult for them to come back and say later on, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think I may have got this wrong or backwards. The human element of all things means that there's going to be mistakes. And I I assure you all, I am not suggesting that it's possible to have a perfect justice system. But what I am saying is that the founding fathers of this nation understood the dangers of the human element which is why the Constitution and its ensuing amendments were put forth as protections for all people. If the laws are just adhered to, there will be less chance of a wrongful conviction. And as I've said numerous times, there are something in the neighborhood of 40,000 of them every year in this country. These rights include everyday things like, for instance, your right to free speech, the First Amendment, your right to bear arms, the Second Amendment, your right to be free from illegal seizures illegal search and seizure, Fourth Amendment, just name a few. There's another right, too, just as important as these other ones. It's called the right to confront your accuser. And it's under the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, and it's often called the Confrontation Clause. Now, why is this so important? Obviously, it's it's important because let's say – that a detective or a prosecutor decides to believe a witness who happens to be lying. The confrontation clause is meant to protect, to serve as a safeguard so as the, that the jury just doesn't swallow hook, line, and sinker whatever the prosecution says is true. In my case, as we know, 
The state built its case on the untested accusations of Eloy Montano against me. The police made a decision to accept his version of the events in question, even when they caught him in lies, and even when their own investigation showed them otherwise. I don't, I don't know. I don't pretend to know what was happening there. But maybe the detective felt that he had a gut feeling about Eloy's veracity or, or, or maybe they had too many cases to deal with and a lack of budget and funding. Maybe it would have just been too expensive or problematic or troublesome for them to change directions to actually pursue the truth. Whatever their reasoning was for building an investigation around Eloy's self-serving accusations, the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution exists for the sole purpose of preventing a jury from being exposed to an accusation like that made to the police unless Eloy or an an accuser like Eloy is willing to make that accusation under oath in a court of law and be subjected to cross-examination. If that doesn't happen or some very close variation of that doesn't happen, then it's considered unconstitutional. The general idea being that a person may say any number of things to the police for fear, for malice, for vengeance, for any number of reasons. But if they have to do it to the person's face, under oath, and be subjected to questions regarding their motives, they may think twice before perjuring themselves. It's not a foolproof protection, but it's something. And it's a protection mechanism meant to prevent wrongful convictions. And it existed in common law hundreds of years before the constitution of this country was even drafted. I'm, I'm obviously not a lawyer. But I don't think you need to be one to understand something so simple. So the question becomes, why did the court not uphold my constitutional rights to confrontation? That... Amber G, is the $17 million question. Perhaps if we follow the chain of events, we'll be able to somehow better understand or maybe get some clarity if we look at this thing from the beginning. I mean, at the beginning, the prosecution's case was built from the self-serving accusations made against me by Eloy Montano. And if we follow the prosecution's proposed witness list, filed with the court and presented to the defense, Eloy Montano was always on their proposed witness list. Don't take my word for it. Look at my website. See them for yourselves. He was under subpoena by the prosecution and was kept outside the court, outside the courtroom while the state made its case against me. But the prosecution, the state, never called him to the stand. Why? Why not call its star witness to the stand and testify under oath? Keep in mind that the jury did, did get to hear and read every accusation he made against me, both to the police and to his wife. They didn't get to hear any cross-examination, nor did they get to hear him say anything under oath. So the question we're left with, aside from the obvious, is why was the prosecution so motivated to get a conviction illegally? Because when constitutional rights are violated and that violation was actually harmful, the conviction that comes from it is illegal. Illegal. Why would a public official, someone who is charged by the public for the public, to uphold the law, 
to prosecute crime, yes, but to do so upholding the, the, the law. Choose to prosecute a crime illegally. And that is a very, very, very good question that I think we all need to answer because it involves public officials, people who are supposed to have our trust. Kerry Brandenburg was an elected district attorney during my prosecution. And for those of you who know who she is, then you know that her administration was under constant attack for corruption allegations. From issues related to her having allegedly used her influence to protect her son from criminal prosecution, to issues related to police brutality. I mean, she was quite possibly not the most ethically grounded politician of our times. And I'm also not going to commit the same error that was made against me. She may be innocent of all these, ac these accusations. I don't know. This is what the media has uh, put out there for us. And here's what we do know about her actions. The first prosecutor assigned to my case was Gerald Byers, assistant district attorney. He was later removed from my case by Carrie Brandenburg, and then she assigned herself to the case. Now, why would a politician with almost no trial experience remove an already experienced prosecutor, and then assign herself to the case. My trial attorney, as I've told you before, had 30 years of experience, and it was actually her supervisor at the public defender's office years before, thought that her move was very, very odd, given that she didn't have any trial experience. Why then did she remove an experienced prosecutor and assign herself? Could it be because Garland Taylor, the man they were trying to accuse me of killing, was a very upstanding citizen? I mean, putting to the side for the moment that I've been wrongfully accused, convicted, and sentenced for his death, the situation was and continues to be tragic. I mean, I can't even imagine the torment that his family has probably gone through and probably still goes through. And I'm sure that it's painful for them to see me fighting for my innocence. I'm sure they'd much rather see such a painful chapter in their lives stay closed. And I truly wish that I could help them with that. But I have to fight for what I know is right. And even though I know that if I hadn't come to New Mexico to seek out the help of someone who I thought was my friend, that none of this would probably have happened, there was no way for me to foresee what Eloy would do. I also couldn't have foreseen that I would be having probably one of the last conversations with Mr. Taylor. You know that while I was taking pictures of the house and asking questions about the foreclosure of the mortgage and all the details about the property, he was talking about his family. He wasn't trying to sell me a house. He was trying to help me find the right property. He told me about his grandkids and his brother, and he told me about how he was so very, very proud of his brother because he was a federal agent for the U.S. Marshal's Office. I can't even imagine what the Taylor family has been through. But of course, stepping back into the reality of things where I did not kill Garland Taylor because that is the reality in which we all exist in. I can imagine that the brother, the now presidentially appointed U.S. Marshal and bureaucrat, would have been in a very good position, even back in 2004, to have had a very lengthy conversation with Kerry Brandenburg, the elected district attorney, to demand that justice be done for his brother. And I'm not suggesting that it was illegal for one public official to meet with another to demand justice. I would have done the same exact thing. But what is it that we all know that politicians do, aside from lie? Politicians make assurances. Justice will be done and I will personally see to it. It's probably exactly what any politician would say to a grieving family in that position. So maybe Brandenburg, 
decides to prosecute the case to herself to show that no leniency would be given. I mean, it's highly plausible given her uh, movements, given her lack of experience, especially since we know that plea negotiations with the previous prosecutor and defense counsel at the time were discussions around a 10-year plea. Now, let me say something. If I had just lost my brother, I would be pretty upset and pissed if a 10-year plea was being discussed for the person that I thought had taken my brother from me. Who wouldn't be? The problem, however, is that for a politician to take on a prosecution themselves, they have to be very, very certain that they're going to win. Because the votes that they get on the next election cycle are going to depend on it. And the big problem that Kerry Brandenburg was confronted with was twofold. One, there was no physical evidence against me. Everything was circumstantial, mostly because of having been present at the scene. And two, her case was literally built around Eloy's credibility and his self-serving lies. It was a twofold problem that could easily have lost her the case. By the end of the less than thorough investigation, they were aware of so many of Eloy's self-serving lies that they ended up indicting him on just his own statements. How was she then going to sell him as credible to the, to the jury? Can anyone explain that to me? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Eloy Montano is telling you the truth, except, well, when he's not telling you the truth, for which we've already indicted him for. I mean, that's not a statement that a prosecutor is going to make, at least not one who intends to keep her elected position. If you're a prosecutor and that's the statement you have to make to the jury, you might as well drop the charges, pack up your office, and save the taxpayers the three-quarters of a million dollars in prosecution fees that you're about to spend of the taxpayers' money. Because that case is going nowhere just like your career. Ideally, what's supposed to happen in this type of case is the prosecution typically offers someone like Eloy immunity for his testimony, which means exactly how it sounds. He repeats what he already told them, this time under oath, and he's guaranteed that he won't be prosecuted. Great deal, right? Especially if you're someone who actually did the crime, in this case, the murder. But that has its own risks for the, for the prosecution, you see. It's one thing if you're the prosecutor and you believe that your witness is telling the truth. I mean, you can easily sell his credibility to the jury and most likely get a conviction and a win. You know, one more tally mark on the left column of wins for your life and career. But what if your witness hasn't been truthful and you've caught him in many lies? Then what? What if you call him to the stand with formal immunity and suddenly he has an attack of conscience and decides to tell the truth? Only... It's not the same truth that he told the day before or the day before that. Obviously, that would be catastrophic, and obviously, that would probably end your career. Now, what's very interesting about this case is that a week prior to the beginning of my trial, there was a hearing where the possibility of Eloy's testimony coming into the trial without his presence was being discussed by the judge, the prosecution, and my defense counsel. And several things are clear from reading these transcripts. And I invite everyone to visit My Life Plus 25, look under the legal document section, and look for, the, for yourselves. January 24th, 2006. First, the first thing you're going to notice here is that the judge believes that Eloy already has immunity because that's what he says. And yet, being that immunity can only be granted 
by the prosecution. It's odd that Kerry Brandenburg doesn't stand up and address the court and say something like, Your Honor, just to be clear, I'm not granting Evelyn Montano immunity. But she doesn't say that. My own lawyer must have thought that what the judge was saying about Evelyn's immunity was also true. Because he didn't bother to correct the judge either. Strange, right? That the judge would believe that Eloy had immunity from the prosecution and the state, state as much for the basis of whatever decision he was about to make, and yet nobody, not the prosecution or the defense, bothered to correct him. And what's even stranger is that if you read the transcripts and you know anything whatsoever about the Confrontation Clause or any of the Supreme Court cases that make up the body of law on this issue, it'll be very clear to you that nobody in that courtroom seemed to understand that what they were discussing was essentially going to cause irreparable harm to my constitutional rights. Please, like I said, don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. It's on my site, January 24th, 2006. It's a lot like reading an Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first. The simple fact is Carrie Brandenburg had to win. She had chosen a course of action based on a theory that I was guilty, a theory based on the proven lies of Eloy Montano. Now, the most obvious question that you're probably asking yourself is if the prosecutor knew that Eloy was lying to protect himself, as the evidence shows that she did, why didn't she just change her stance in the name of justice and prosecute Eloy for murder? I mean, after all, wasn't that what she swore an oath to, to do? To uphold the Constitution, pursue justice above all else? I mean, yes, I mean, obviously that is what she swore an oath to do. But realistically, how many politicians do any of us know who would sacrifice their own livelihoods or careers for the sake of justice, for the sake of doing the right thing? Especially because in this case, if she had done just what we're talking about and decided to pursue justice and Eloy Montano instead of me, she would have been in even an even worse position and less likely to get a conviction. And that's all it was about, getting a conviction, not truth or, or justice. And why? Why is that? Why wouldn't they have been able to get a case against him? Because at least in her prosecution against me, she had Eloy's accusation. It wasn't reliable, but at least it was something. And she had the added bonus of having my ex-lovers and ex-business associates lining up to tell her what an awful and, and ambitious person that I was. Of course, none of these people had anything to do with the state of New Mexico or this case. But sensationalization sells, just like slander does. And it's sometimes useful sensationalized slander, especially when you have to convince a jury that someone is a monster so that you can save your own career. On the other hand, what did she really have against Eloy? He was involved in buying the gun? Okay. Apparently paid for it? Even better. Was 50 feet away from the payphone that lured Mr. Taylor to his death? Helpful. Last one to have been in possession of the gun by his own admission? fled the state in his vehicle at his expense. These are compelling facts. He lied about any number of issues related to the case in his statements, in his accusations against me. But since the investigators had only done a rudimentary investigation from the beginning, at best, they didn't have what they needed to get a legitimate, a legitimate conviction. Not against him, not when they hadn't expanded any efforts. 
Everything that they had was circumstantial. And especially when there was nobody accusing him. That's right. Which just what you heard is true. Nobody was accusing him. Not formally, at least. Not me. Not anyone. Listen. On the day of the crime, after the adrenaline had started to, to wear off, and I began to see that I was not in any immediate mortal danger, I was livid. I told him he needed to turn himself in. I told him just like that. You've implicated me. You have to turn yourself in. Numerous people had seen me at that house. Now, I'm not an expert, but I knew enough to know that if someone ends up dead and you're the last one to be seen with that person alive, you better have an airtight alibi or have an obscene amount of money because they're, otherwise you can just kiss your ass goodbye because the police are going to need someone to blame for that, and that someone is going to be you. Well, Eloy was my alibi. He was the person who knew that I didn't kill anyone. He was the person that knew that I didn't have anything to do with any of that, that I was the proposed victim of that. Of course, I also didn't know that he was still conspiring with my ex-father-in-law, Dennis Moline. Because how else could Dennis Moline have come into contact with the victim's wallet? It's more probable that he'd be struck by lightning while in the basement of his own home than the coincidence that he somehow managed to sell to the detectives on this case. That he just happened to be signed in to the same Jewish Community Center health club along with 10 other men. And that he had no idea how Garland Taylor's wallet found its way to the very same men's locker room in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not sure what kind of education these detectives get, but obviously they aren't taught anything about probabilities or statistics. Because if that was a coincidence, then I'm the goddamn Monopoly man. Simple as that. Like I said, Eloy was my alibi, and I figured, based on what he was both telling me and not wanting to tell me just yet, is that someone associated with, with my father-in-law approached him and offered him three to five years of his income to put me in a position where I would pay my business partners what they wanted. But then, wouldn't it have just been sufficient to just hold me at gunpoint? And I straight up asked him that, to which he stated and started ranting on about how I had thrown in his face a couple of days prior when we had an argument about me not wanting to help him and his get-rich-quick schemes of robbing and killing and taking someone hostage, and I flat out told him that he did not have the balls to pull something like that off. I didn't hold anything back. I told him it was time to grow up. We're not kids anymore. And that's when he confessed to all sorts of betrayals that he had slept with my fiancé from college and betrayed me in any number of ways. You know what I told him? Good for you. That doesn't change the fact that I'm not going to help you. So basically, from what I could tell, Garland Taylor died and lost his life, and his grandchildren lost their grandfather, because my barbed words of truth got to the soft underbelly of Eloy's ego. And since he was my alibi, I wasn't going to let him out of my sight until I knew every detail that he knew, and he confessed. And when he told me that he was going to flee, the decision that I had to go with him was obvious. If I would have gone to the police without him, Without him admitting what he had done, it would have been the same as committing suicide. Because even at that point in my life, with my best friend having turned into my best betrayer, I still trusted him more than I trusted the police. In my entire life, I have never had even one positive experience tied to the police. As far as I was concerned, even as someone who wore a suit and tie every day, paid my taxes, and had people who depended on me for their livelihoods. In my mind, there was nobody more criminal than the police. 
I could devote an entire podcast to the persecution that I've suffered just because I speak Spanish and live in this country. And the only way I was going to go and go to the police was with Eloy in front of me. And to make that happen, I was going to have to sit in the nasty passenger seat of that nasty pickup truck and convince him that the only legitimate way forward for either of us was to go to the police. First, he, I remember he wanted to flee to Mexico. Okay, I said, then what? And without money, language, or context, you're not going to make it. I'm not going to finance the rest of your life. I'll work, he said. Then I explained to him that in Mexico, without the language or a visa, that wasn't going to work either. It took two days of letting him run through all of these solutions before I could finally convince him that the only realistic solution was for us to go to the police together, and he was just going to have to tell them what happened. Altogether, it was a very, very emotional two days for the both of us, and lots of grievances were aired. By the time we got back to Albuquerque, it was after midnight, and neither of us were in any condition to go to the police. I wanted him to stay with me in the hotel like he had the previous two, two nights. But he was actually crying while begging me to let him spend one more night with his pregnant wife, who supposedly he believed he would never see her again. I guess he thought he was going to walk into the police station and disappear off the face of the planet. Without a doubt, that has to be one of the stupidest decisions of my life. After two days of sitting in that filthy truck with him, trying to convince him to do the right thing, for me to let him out of my sight hours until we get to the finish line was beyond stupid. It was suicidal. Obviously, he never showed up the next morning. The police had him at his work when he went to supposedly get his paycheck before coming to me so that we could go to the police. And I didn't learn this till later, but apparently he told his wife a version of the events that had taken place. Now, whether or not he told her the truth, I don't know. But apparently they devised a new strategy that night that encompassed the both of them. Because when the police had him under arrest, he decided to save himself at my expense. And when the police arrested me without any resistance on my part, they told me that Eloy had confessed and that they believed him and that they recommended that I stay quiet because I was being charged for Garland Taylor's death. They, re they believed him before they did any even investigation. No evidence had been attained and they believed him. And before I gave a statement, I was going to have a lawyer. And when I did have a lawyer days later, he emphatically told me to remain silent because nothing good could come from talking to the police. So like I said, the prosecution didn't have any, anyone accusing Eloy. Even if the state would have convinced me to testify against Eloy, it wouldn't have been credible because the jury would obviously have known that I was being charged first and that it would just appear that I was trying to save myself. What else did the jury have against Eloy? A suspicious discharge from the Marine Corps for having been violent and mentally unfit? A sister-in-law who believed, according to Eloy, that he actually killed Mr. Taylor? Does anyone wonder why the police never interviewed her? He actually said that she believed that he killed Garland Taylor, and the police never thought to interview her. They could probably have pushed the same hitman fantasy based on what everything that they found on his computer. But all of it was circumstantial evidence and unlikely to lead to a conviction. And the dilemma before Carrie Brandenburg was the following. Either she had to do whatever she had to do to get a conviction against me or kiss any hopes of a conviction goodbye, along with whatever assurances she had made to the U.S. Marshal and his family and potentially to her already tenuous career. Besides, politicians don't typically get to where they are 
by admitting fault to anything. Deny, 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 lie, lie, lie. That's what politicians do. So thank you for this, this uh, question. Thank you so much for today's topic. Uh, thank you everyone for listening and please remember to subscribe to my weekly column. Uh, my Life Plus 25, that's on Substack. You can get to it through my website. You can even read some of the content there for free. And the reason that I'm doing this, the reason that I'm trying to get subs subscriptions and raising funding is because I'm trying to bring awareness to a, through a documentary uh, on my own case, yes, but also on wrongful convictions in general, which I think would be beneficial to the 40,000 people around this nation that get wrongfully convicted every year. A lot of them do not have a voice, and they do not have a way to defend them themselves. So until next time, thank you.